gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times, they are a-changing That was Bob Dylan singing The Times They Are A-Changing. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. The times certainly have changed, but Bob Dylan has endured as a major figure in American culture for five decades. This week, we mark his 70th birthday. Bob Dylan is a singer, songwriter, poet, performer, musician, and painter. He wrote the anthems for a generation, perfectly articulating the discontent and the hope of the 1960s. But Dylan never stood still. He always evolved. Part of his power is his ability to take music and to make it into something completely his own. His lyrics are often poetic, married to melodies that underscore their meaning, and delivered with a voice that's imperfect and unforgettable. Dylan is acknowledged as a master songwriter and performer. Among his many awards and honors was a special citation from the Pulitzer Committee in 2008 for his profound impact on popular music and American culture. And in 2009, he received the National Medal of Arts from President Obama. Dylan has been the subject of many autobiographies. Most recently, Bob Dylan in America, which was written by the Princeton cultural historian Sean Wilentz. Wilentz may be an historian, but he's no musical novice. He's received a Deems Taylor Award for musical commentary and a Grammy nomination for his liner notes to Bootleg Series Volume 6, Bob Dylan, Live, 1964, The Concert at Philharmonic Hall. In Bob Dylan in America, Wilentz looks at Dylan's music both within the context of its time and within the stream of American culture that reaches back to Aaron Copland, Woody Guthrie, and blind Willie McTell. In the first of a two-part interview, I talk with Sean Wilentz about Bob Dylan's influences and early career. I began my conversation by asking Sean why he chose to write about Bob Dylan. Well, there are a bunch of answers to that, Joe. Um, in part, it's because I grew up uh, in a very peculiar time and place. Uh, my dad and his brother ran the 8th Street Bookshop in Greenwich Village, um, the corner of 8th Street and McDougal, in the 1950s and 1960s, um, which was the literary downtown literary crossroads. Every writer in New York came through there, including the beat poets like Allen Ginsberg and uh, the others. And it was kind of, you know, a, a hip spot, hip, hip literary spot. And it was also just down the block from where the folk revival was getting started um, in the 1960s, which Bob Dylan was very much a part of. So I grew up in that world and uh, was very much there. My dad, in fact, got me tickets to uh, see a Bob Dylan show in 1964. He was the first one to give me a copy. He gave me my first copy of Blonde on Blonde. I mean, it was a very strange upbringing. I just thought it was normal. So that's one reason that it's been around in my life and in my soul, I guess, since I was very, very young. But the other is my, the way I write as a historian. I am an academic historian in the sense that I teach at Princeton, and I certainly train professional historians. But much of my writing, or I've tried to aim my writing at a, 
broader audience. And I've written a great deal for journals and magazines and so forth. I have a kind of double life or double career as a writer. So writing this kind of book isn't so odd for me, um, given all the writing I've been doing, especially my writing about Bob Dylan. The title of your book is Bob Dylan in America, and you read him as an American artist, part of the stream of American culture. Well, you know, I mean, Dylan comes out of the heartland of America, or comes out of what people call the heartland. He comes out of Hibbing, Minnesota, a dying mining town in, in northern Minnesota. Very much aware of American music. American music is what turned him on to music in the first place. You know, listening to it in all kinds of situations, listening to it late at night as the uh, radio stations from Shreveport, Louisiana would beam in all of that music, rhythm and blues and all kinds of things that you weren't going to be hearing in Hibbing, Minnesota. But other things, too, um, the pop songs of the 1940s, um, the polka songs of the 1940s. All of this was around him very early on. He was picking up on it. And then, of course, he got interested first in Little Richard and rock and roll, but then very deeply in Woody Guthrie. And um, from the very start of his career, American song and, and American poetry gave him his American voice. And since then, he has been a student. He doesn't just restrict himself to, to American materials, but he's very, very interested not only in the, uh, the stuff of American culture, but of this whole kind of almost mythic America that kind of exists now but doesn't, um, certainly is, is existed in the past, although not quite as people remember it, an America of um, factory towns, an America of circuses, traveling circuses, an America of Edward Hopper-like scenes. He wants to try and conjure up all of that that's very much a part of American life and, uh, as I say, make it his own. I mean, turn it into something else. But it's, it's distinctly American. He is speaking out of America to America and then ultimately to the world. So how much of a historian is Bob Dylan? Oh, Bob Dylan's an amazing historian, actually, in a funny way. I mean, when he describes in his wonderful memoir, Chronicles Volume 1, about how he was actually listening to the Clancy Brothers at the, um, the White Horse Bar in, uh, on Hudson Street in New York and listening to all the great old Irish rebel songs like Kevin Barry, The Minstrel Boy, and so forth, and how he was you know, very excited by all of them, but they didn't connect with American life. So what did he do? He went up to the New York Public Library and started reading microfilm copies of old newspapers from the 1850s uh, that were describing how the nation was lurching towards the Civil War. And um, he says in his memoir that from that experience, he really found the template for all the rest of his music coming out of the death and transfiguration uh, of, of a nation. Now, not all of his songs are about that, obviously, but I think that he understands a good deal about American history. He reads American history closely. Um, he has written historical songs, songs that actually deal with Civil War themes. So he's very well aware of it. The, the thing about Dylan is, he can take the past and the songs of the past and the sights of the past and the myths of the past and make them seem as if they are present. He can have them inhabit the present so that the past and the present don't look so different from one another. Um, he can take an old, I don't know, an old fiddle tune and turn it into a different kind of song that is speaking to today but is also lodged in the past. So he's kind of breaking down the difference between them, the distance between them, giving you a kind of timeless magic zone where it can be 1850 and 1930 and 2010 all at the same time. He does that in his songs, but you have to know a lot about the past to be able to do that. You begin your book by telling stories about other American artists, and I think most of us would be forgiven if you would have started with Woody Guthrie, mm -hmm. but oh no. 
You went. <laughs> <laughs> you began with Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Tell us how we began there. Yeah. Well, we, I began there in part because I just didn't want to do Woody Guthrie again. I mean, the stories told about Guthrie's influence on Dylan are pretty familiar. Um, I had very little to add about all of that. And, and I didn't want to denigrate Guthrie in any way, but I just didn't want to do what everybody else had done. But what I was interested in doing is finding out more about the cultural world of which Guthrie was a part, but not just Guthrie, and not just the people around him, directly around him, like Pete Seeger and Cisco Houston and, and others, but rather a, a bigger conjuries of, of American life in the 1930s and 1940s, both political and musical. I was going to create the folk revival, the first folk revival, really, of the 1930s and 1940s, which would then help spark that, which Dylan took, took part in, in the 1960s. So I wanted to get this bigger world of basically left-wing music-making in the 1930s and 1940s. And along the way, I happened upon a review that was written about Aaron Copeland. Uh, he gave a performance at uh, the Composers Collective, which was a basically communist-affiliated music group, which he was you know, hanging around with. Um, and the review was in The Daily Worker, and it was, it was a rave review written by one Carl Sands, who turned out to be Pete Seeger's father, Charles Seeger. And, and then I found out that Charles Seeger actually dragged his kid along to, uh, to hear Aaron Copeland discourse at this little club. There were connections between Aaron Copeland, the world of Aaron Copeland, the preoccupations of Aaron Copeland, the political thrust of his work, and what was going to be going on ending up with Woody Guthrie and the Almanac Singers and all the things that we're familiar with. So what I wanted to suggest, what I want to try to, to work out, were some of the connections between Copeland's very different kind of musical experience, creating orchestral music out of all of that rather than folk music, but using mm -hmm. folk music and, and elevating it to a kind of orchestral art in a way that, that Dylan was later to take American folk music and while not doing orchestral music but certainly singing other kinds of things, also raising them to a different kind of art. But the impulses that were very much around Aaron Copeland were the same kinds of impulses that were affecting Bob Dylan. So I wanted to try and make the connection that way. So that whole world did have an effect, both direct and indirect, on what Dylan was up to. And Aaron Copeland's music, at least, was sort of an opening act for Bob Dylan well, after 9-11. Yeah. No, that's right, Joe. That's the other thing that I, that, the other connection, direct connection that's there. Just after uh, the attacks of September 11, 2001, when Dylan opened a, a tour in the Pacific Northwest, at some point in that tour, he began playing as this kind of call to order, his recorded music that means the concert's about to begin. I began playing Copeland's Hoedown from Rodeo. So there was, you know, obviously Copeland meant something to him. Um, he wouldn't be there if it weren't. And also what the other connection there was that that particular tune, Hoedown, had first been recorded in the 1930s. It was being played by, it's the version played by Kentucky fiddler named William Hamilton Stepp. And it happened to be recorded by Alan Lomax, who was very, very much a part of that old folk world. So here was a song that came out of Lo Alan Lomax was transformed by Aaron Copeland and then ends up starting a Bob Dylan concert. There's a cultural circuit that I wanted to uh, explain and explore. 
Well, and let me just stick another spoke in that circle, because here at the National Endowment for the Arts, the person who was the first director of the folk arts department was Bess Lomax Hawes. His, his sister, I think. That's yes. right. I mean, the, the Lomax family, going back to John Avery, is, is, is very important. And at the Library of Congress, Alan Lomax worked as basically, he ran the folk song archive at the Library of Congress for many years and did a lot of very important work there. And the other cultural strand that you follow that preceded Bob Dylan, but most certainly was an influence on him and on his work, was the Beats, the Beat Poets. Right. Most particularly Allen Ginsberg. Right. Well, Less of a surprise. Less of a surprise. People knew about Dylan's connection with Ginsberg because it became a kind of, I don't know, they became the... uh, the hippest friendship of the mid-1960s, right? For, for a certain, if you were growing up in a certain part of New York. But, you know, Ginsburg was of an older generation, was uh, one of the leaders of the Beat Generation eruption in the 1950s, and actually going back to the 1940s when the whole thing began at Columbia University. Dylan read The Beats. In fact, I just found out he read a book that my father edited called The Beat Scene. I hadn't known that, but uh, in the little circle that he was in, in in Minneapolis when he was living there as before he came to New York, that book was around. At any rate, the, the Beats were there, but Woody Guthrie took precedence, so he kind of put The Beats aside. But the thing about Dylan is that, you know, he never rejects anything. It's always there for him to go back to. So, in late 1963, when Dylan was kind of at the end of his rope in some ways, artistically and um, aesthetically, uh, spiritually, he begins going through certain changes and ends up writing lyrics that are much more in an impressionistic and clearly beat generation-influenced vein. He happened at that point to meet Allen Ginsberg for the first time. Actually, again, as the memoir bit comes in, um, in my uncle's apartment above the bookshop. That's where that meeting took place. And they became friends and remained friends until Ginsburg's death in 1997. But I wasn't interested in just in tracing the friendship, although it's fairly interesting, but in looking at the ways that Dylan's work was deeply affected by beat prosody and uh, what they had originally called a new vision. In albums, particularly on Highway 61 Revisited, you can see it beginning in another side of Bob Dylan and, and, um, and bringing it all back home, but particularly in Desolation Row, where specific lines come out of a book that uh, Jack Kerouac had published that very year, 1965, called Desolation Angels. Um, Direct lines are taken from there, but also the spirit of songs like Desolation Row were very much, I believe, in, in the beat vein. They're selling postcards of the hanging They're painting the passports brown The beauty parlor is filled with sailors The circus is in town Here comes the blind commissioner They've got him in a trance One hand is tied to the tightrope walker The other is in his pants And the riot squad, they're restless They need somewhere to go As Lady and I look out tonight From Desolation Road So, in effect, Bob Dylan picked up on the beats to help him come out of one kind of Bob Dylan. One shape of Bob Dylan became another shape of Bob Dylan, and the beats in some ways um, were an influence and in some ways were actually a catalyst. As you mentioned, this book 
is part memoir is not exactly right, but there's a strand of memoir that's that's woven into the story. I think that's a better way of putting it. Right. Do you remember the first time you heard Bob Dylan? Yes, I do. And it was in church. So, you know, explain that one. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. At my little Sunday school, I grew up actually in Brooklyn Heights. The, the bookstore was in the village, but my mother refused to leave Brooklyn, so we grew up in Bro- I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. At uh, my Unitarian church group, uh, a young girl a little bit older than me came in with this record, Freewheeling Bob Dylan, and the cover got me right away because it's that famous picture of Dylan with his, his then-girlfriend, Susie Rodolo, walking down a snowy street on Jones Street in the village. But the songs got to me, too, so I, I very much remember all of that. The concert he gave in 1964 at New York's Philharmonic Hall was important, and you were there. Uh, Yeah, my dad got these tickets, and it was Dylan on the cusp of change. You know, uh, he was still playing with his harmonicas and his harmonica rack and his acoustic guitar, but he was kind of coming out of, he was very much involved in that shift that the Beats' work proved so influential in, in, in helping him make, out of you know, political songs um, like Who Killed Davy Moore or even The Times They Are Changing, which is the song he began the concert with, into things like um, Gates of Eden and It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding, which have a, uh, a social, even political side to them, but where the language is much different, much lusher, as well as, you know, much more personal songs and much more introspective songs. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand, you know too soon There's no sense in trying Pointed fingers bluff with scorn At suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece The hollow horn Plays wasted words proves to warn That he not busy being born Is busy dying Temptations page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel to moan, but unlike before Discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear if you hear A foreign sound to your ear It's all right, ma I'm only sighing So Dylan is kind of performing in New York. There's a big concert at Philharmonic Hall, the biggest gig in terms of prestige, I suppose, that he'd yet given. And performed for us this mixture of things showing where he had been, but very much showing where he was going in ways that bowled us all over. You spend a chapter on Blonde on Blonde. Yes. The recording of that. Mm-hmm. Why? Let's talk about that. Why, what was special about that? 
Dylan had recorded like a Rolling Stone. He had made his um, appearance at Newport. He was very much in his electric vein, which uh, got some people angry, made some people think he had betrayed them. But he's continuing. He's pushing on. And really, very soon after all of that had happened at Newport, he goes into the studio in New York. Um, He has one song, really special song, that he wants to record called Freeze Out um, at the time, which later became Visions of Johanna, which is, you know, one of the the truly great Dylan songs, um, right up there with with, with any of them. Um, He had that ready, but he couldn't quite record it. He was using his then touring band, The Hawks, who later became The Band, But things weren't quite gelling. Um, He got some other studio musicians in to record one song that did work out, not Visions of Johanna, but then moved down to Nashville. And in Nashville combined some of his um, musicians from New York, uh, Robbie Robertson and uh, and above all Al Cooper, his organ player and quasi-musical director. And they met up with, you know, some of the most talented young session men in Nashville. And they created this extraordinary album, Blonde on Blonde, um, with songs not only the recording of Visions of Johanna, but songs like Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands and uh, Absolutely Sweet Marie and, and, and all kinds of stuff in various different forms. But coming down to what Dylan once called um, a thin, wild, mercury sound um, that he was aiming for, or that Cooper, in fact, I think just as evocatively, calls the sound of 3 a.m. They had the sound of 3 a.m. down really, really well. Yeah, little boy lost He takes himself so seriously He breaks of his misery He likes to live dangerously And when bringing her name up He speaks of a farewell kiss to me Got a lot of gall to be so useless and all, muttering small talk at the wall while I'm in the hall. Oh, how can I explain? It's so hard to get on. And these visions of Johanna They'd kept me up past the dawn And it's an extraordinary album, but about which there's been a lot of myth generated and then that's kind of uh, clung to to it like barnacles about how that particular um, album was made. So I wanted in part in this chapter, each chapter is a slightly different angle of vision on Bob Dylan. I wanted in this chapter to pierce through some of the myth to try and get at as close as I could to what actually happened, but also to try and use it as a way to understand something about Dylan's creative processes during this period of his career in particular. And I was lucky enough actually to get access to some manuscripts of these songs at the uh, Morgan Library. Um, which you could see how he was going from a kind of almost stream of consciousness, just laying down lines on paper, which had no real connection, how he boiled those down into songs, boiled them down to the point where he was actually working very hard in the studio in Nashville to get them right, get the lyrics right. So you could see this seemingly spontaneous guy actually working very hard at what he was doing, 
and then you could see other aspects of on the musical side from the way that he interacted with the uh, the Nashville musicians, which turns out to have been very, very well. His 1966 motorcycle accident in many ways marked the end of that era. What happened? Well, something happened up near Bearsville, New York, where his manager had a house. Um, he was riding a motorcycle, something something went wrong. And it forced him to, to, to slow down. It forced him to withdraw. He had to withdraw for all kinds of reasons, but he was his, his life was really kind of spinning at the edge. Um, he had come out of a very long world tour, a very harrowing world tour that ended up with the famous concert in Manchester, England, where he got accused of being Judas. A fan shouted Judas, a heckler at his electric music. They were just shocking concerts. And and he's recorded Blonde on Blonde, and he's really out on the edge. And I think that he needed to recoup. I think he needed to withdraw for a while to reconfigure, to change shape, if you will, but to change shape in a way at a pace that was a little, little slower and a little less, what shall we say, supercharged than it had been for a couple of years before that. Um, and out of that comes all sorts of new music. He starts mm-hmm. recording in, uh, in West Saugerties with um, the members of the band who were also up there, who were getting closer to becoming known as the band. He, he recorded, just for fun, um, a whole string of American folk songs and some originals that later became known as the Basement Tapes. While he's basically still doing the Basement Tapes, he's putting together an album that will be John Wesley Harding, um, which is his first record after the motorcycle incident which is, in terms of its sound, even though he's using some of the same musicians, uh, he went down to Nashville to record it, um, particularly Charlie McCoy and the um, the drummer Kenny Buttrey, it, the sound is, is utterly different than Blonde on Blonde. Um, they are very simple, almost biblical parables, stories, narratives, but you know one can understand them, although they certainly have a mysterious quality. And they have a biblical quality as well in some of them, like uh, All Alone the Watchtower. There must be some way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my earth None of them along the line Nobody of it is worth He kindly spoke There are many here among us Who feel that life is but a joke But you and I, we've been through that And this is not our fate So let us not talk falsely now The hour is getting late He needed that break in some ways to get his head back together again and uh, to readjust his art. That was Sean Wilentz in the first of a two-part interview about Bob Dylan. Next time, Sean and I pick it up with Bob Dylan's album, Blood on the Tracks, and the Rolling Thunder Review. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from today's songs were all written and performed by Bob Dylan and used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Each song was used by permission of Jeff Rosen and Special Rider Music. 
with the exception of Hoedown from Rodeo, which was composed by Aaron Copeland, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, and performed by the New York Philharmonic. Used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment, used by permission of Boozy and Hawks. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Here's the second verse of it. (laughs) To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Does anybody know the first verse of this song? I can't understand. I let go of my hand. It's the same song, same song, we started now. <laughs>